Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I am really pleased to be speaking with Thomas Chatterton Williams. Uh, Thomas is a contributor to New York Times Magazine, uh, Harper's, and is a fellow at AEI. And he's an author of two books, Losing My Cool, and his most recent one, Self-Portrait in Black and White, Unlearning Race. Hi Thomas, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. I, I have to say, I was trying to figure out where a lot of this stuff, you know, uh, only white people can be racist. Like all the, a lot of this stuff came out. Like I... I got exposed to it in 2014 when I came back from overseas and I, I got sick and I was at home for about 18 months and all I did was read critical race theory and intersectionality. <laughs> and then after that, I read your book and it was such a palate cleanser. I mean, it was like after reading nothing but critical race theory and intersectionality to read your book discussing race, it was such an amazing palate cleanser because I mean, I, I think I seriously damaged myself reading that much critical race theory. <laughs> what what prompted you to do that? Um, like I said, I, I okay. I worked with the military. I was always a civilian contractor, and I was away from 2002 to 2014. I come back to North America in 2014 from Afghanistan, and first of all, I noticed the the conversation on Islam, and I'd seen it while I was overseas. Just really went bizarre. Like you know, people calling Majid Nawaz a racist house Muslim, and I'm like, do you know with you know the the origin of that term, like where it actually comes from. And so I just wanted to know what happened. And then, you know, that was 2014. I ended up getting a job in Northern Canada. So I moved. So I mean, like, you know, life comes in the way as well. And I took a couple of wrong turns. I kept hearing postmodernism, but I have a political science background. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really seem like postmodernism. It's not quite the same thing. And around 2017, I started hearing about critical race theory and intersectionality. And then I started looking into it. And the end of 2018, like I said, I, uh, I was up north. I got something that couldn't be treated up there. It was just, I needed an orthopedic, uh, orthopedist, so they sent me back to Montreal. So I was in Montreal for 18 months, and I just started reading. Like, I went and got, you know, I, I started with Derek Bell and read Delgado, um, you know, Crenshaw, McIntosh, uh, Peggy McIntosh, Patricia L. Collins. I, I read some Audre Lorde, even though that's not really critical race theory, like Angela Davis. Like, I just... I just wanted to know where it came from. And I'm like, where did the conversation go so wrong? You know, like how did things start changing? So that's, that's where, and that was it. That was the only reason I wanted to find out about it. And then, like I said, then I read your book and I was like, oh my God, finally, you know, I was glad to read something decent again. Cause back in university and college, I mean, I, I've read bald, you know, James Baldwin. I read Langston Hughes. I, um, you know, in, in the, in the mid to late nineties, I read like some Tony Morrison, my Angelou, like even, you know, people like Jamaica Kincaid and stuff like that. So I'd read a lot of different things, but then reading the critical race theory, I'm like, it was just so depressing. Yeah, well, you know, as you, if you've read Derek Bell and uh, Kimberly Crenshaw and all that, it's been around for a long time. It's not new. What's different is, you know, around 2013, 14, um, I think that a couple of things happened. One was a kind of... Um, delayed sense of profound disappointment that all of what was promised implicitly and explicitly by the election of the first black president didn't seem to pan out in people's everyday lives. Uh, and, you know, the internet had really changed and we were all walking around with really powerful cameras and the ability to share videos and these videos of horrific um, police and vigilante killings of unarmed black men and boys 
went viral and there was, you know, we were coming out of a terrible recession and Occupy Wall Street had kind of started to radicalize people against um, what seemed like terrible inequality and, and, and probably is terrible inequality. And all of these things kind of came together. And I think that, uh, I think that it opened a space for um, a profound kind of discontent and, and, and the ability for people who are discontented to find each other and reinforce uh, one another's um, sense, of, uh, sense of harm, sense of grievance. And I don't know that all of this would have come to fruition without, you know, the technological aspect. I really think that, you know, you can't talk about why we all um, use campus jargon and ideas and these academic theories without talking about the way that they have spread on, on social media uh, and, and, and the power of that. Um, so, I, you know, I think that all of this comes together around 2013-14. And then Ta-Nehisi Coates really, you know, he epitomized the moment. Um, but in retrospect, he was not the he was not the 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 figure. He was the precursor to the figures that have arrived now, the Ibram Kendi's, the Robin D'Angelo's, but really Ibram Kendi, who who kind of encapsulate all of the potential of this kind of dissatisfaction uh, paired with white guilt and corporate uh, HR uh, savoir faire, and I guess just the need to to protect the status quo at all costs, even if that means superficial diversification. Yeah, I mean, okay, I work in IT, so maybe I'm biased on this. The tech side of it, and I get what people say about social media spreading it, and I, I mean, I understand it. Like, I know this stuff, you mentioned it's old. Like, I mean, Derek Bell started writing in the early 70s, and then before that, there was critical legal scholarship before critical race theory, right? So, like, I, but the intersectional framework that Crenshaw put on it in the early 90s, I think that's when it, she made it then um, kind of like engineering is to mathematics, like engineering is the applied application of mathematics. She made it an applied quote unquote science or applied social science. And it was one of the people with that came out of universities in the late nineties and the early two thousands. And then they slowly started getting into, and I mean, people get out with universities. I'm not, there's, you know, I'm not begrudging them going, getting to jobs. I'm just saying that the, the training had gone wrong, I think, at one point, and the thinking went wrong. Uh, I heard recently, it was, I think it was John McWhorter speaking with Glenn Lowry on, when they do their show. Uh, he said, you know, we need to get back to a 90s, 1997 mindset. And I'd said that as well. Maybe I'm wrong. Okay, I'm, I'm living in Canada, not in the States. So, you know, up until the late 90s, to me, it looked like we were moving towards that ethic of we don't put social significance on race. We treat people as individuals. Then around the late 90s, there was a slight shift. And I think that shift just as more and more people graduated out of these uh, programs, you know, they get jobs. Okay. You need a diversity program for government. You hire someone with a sociology PhD who's done African-American studies or you know, critical race study theory, because it sounds right. And no one really checked it. And I think that, that side of it grew. And then yes, the social media, it's just like the printing press. Once the printing press came out, all those ideas spread. So, and I, I mean, in, to my mind, this is a very, it seems complicated because of the jargon they use, but it's a very simplistic way of doing it. It's like any of the self-help gurus, you know, the, you know, the Anthony Robbins of the world, they give you like a very quick fix. And so maybe people were craving that. I don't know, but yeah, there, there was like a, 
you know, a perfect storm of everything that kind of happened at one time. And it, I mean, I'm not discounting the social media, but I, I think people put a lot more emphasis on it than I, I think part of it has to go back to the education. Yeah, but I don't know. Most people, I mean, it's well beyond the type of people who have studied these ideas firsthand. Um, they've become mainstreamed. I mean, if you look at the kind of Google analyses of the frequency of words appearing in the New York Times, for example, there's just an explosion since 2014 of things like patriarchy, white supremacy instead of racism, um, you know, whiteness as a kind of concept in word. Um, all of these things, they explode only five, six years ago. Um, and that's not from a bunch of people having suddenly graduated with degrees in this stuff. It's, it's from the way that the, the ideas circulate uh, on Facebook, Twitter. And I mean, Tumblr was really important in this kind of stuff going mainstream. Okay, I'm not discounting any of that, but also, because okay, I know Jonathan Haidt also says it. And I mean, that's when I came back. I came back in February of 2014 or end of February, beginning of March of 2014. And it was like, I was like, Am I the frog thrown in the boiling water and everyone else has just been simmering in this? But it got into high schools or some high schools around 2010. And then also around 2010, because of social media, it was getting around as well. So I'm just thinking that the two things happened at the same time. If it's getting to high schools, kids are talking about it. And then kids will then you know, spread it on, um, on social media. And then you have other... Th so I'm not discounting the social media aspect of the spread of it. But I think that if it's coming through education and more people are talking about it, it has to come from somewhere to spread on social media anyways. It's not that social media created it. Once it starts spreading, then it gets to everyone. Like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I think there's actually very few people out there who are contributing to the conversation that have probably read Derek Bell. Oh, God, yeah. I think. Yeah. I, 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 I have no way of proving that, but I, I'd be surprised if a lot of people are using these kinds of... But, you know, CRT is actually like a way of talking about things that are well uh, beyond just what was written about in those books. You know, it's kind of an umbrella term. I don't think that Donald Trump understands what he's talking about when he talks about critical race theory. There's no way Donald Trump knows what that is, and even if Biden talks about it, I don't think Biden knows what it is. You no. know, I mean... It, like, Okay, when you mentioned that, um, like right after the George Floyd killing, I had friends, like I'm 50, or sorry, 51, like friends my age, who I know didn't study this stuff. They're out of school. All of a sudden, they start talking about white fragility and white privilege, like right afterwards. And then, you know, I would speak to them and I, I'd say, do you know where, where that comes from? Like, what are you talking about? And they hadn't even read, they hadn't read D'Angelo. They just you know, maybe came up Definitely with not. This, uh, you know, diversity training at work or something. And they're going off about it. And I mean, for some of them, I just read the, like, you know, a couple of them who are the women, who are women, I just read them the section on white women's tears. And then when I read that, they're like, this is insane. <laughs> but, you know, I actually, since we, I mean, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but I would like to talk to you about your book and like, but how you're speaking about identity, because that's, for myself, that was the one thing as well. And I, maybe it was different in Canada and especially in Montreal because you have the French-English thing. It was never so much division by race. It was more division by language. I mean, I'm not saying there wasn't racism. Like I experienced it growing up, but it was, you know, I had a bunch of friends and we were, depending on the neighborhoods I lived in, we were, you know, 
brown, yellow, black, white, whatever, all of it. Then the French kids were the same thing, but it was, oh, those are the French kids, we're the English. So, I mean, the way you write about looking at race in your book, um, that's kind of always been my thing. Like, I, I didn't care that I was brown. Um, I remember as a kid, one of my best friends, uh, he was a little black kid named Daryl, and this was in the 70s, so I think it was the Ali Sphinx, Sphinx fight, I think it was the second one. And it was televised. My dad loved boxing. He was talking about it, and Ali is Muslim, and we're you know, we were Muslim family. My dad's like, oh, you know, he's like us. He's Muslim. So I was talking. We were talking about it at school the next day, and and I was like, oh yeah, Ali's like you know, me, and my family, and everyone's like, no, he's not. He's like Daryl because he's black. Like, and it to me, the black thing didn't occur to me. It was just he's Muslim, and that was the identity. So I mean, I really like the way you talked about identity in your book. So if you would mind talking about that a little bit, and like how you you know. If you want to like just go through like how you know a bit, but how you, your book and how you started, like how your idea, ideas of identity changed. Sure. Well, you know, there's all of us have multiple identities, um, and it's there's kind of a strange way that we have pressure to reduce ourselves to one identity, which is supposed to be the most salient about us, which in America is is is, is race, and it's often on the black white binary. And you're right, you know, the, you, could, you could look at someone like Muhammad Ali and you could see him as a boxer, first and foremost, an athlete, and that's his primary identity. Or he's a Muslim, which was uh, perhaps the most meaningful identity to him in certain ways. Or he's, he's a black man, or he's, you know, a conscientious objector. There's so many different ways that you can kind of slice somebody into an identity. And we decide collectively um, to make racecraft uh, what it is in our in our society to, to imbue it with so much importance you know i grew up um in the 80s and 90s in new jersey uh the son of a black father who's old enough to be my grandfather from the segregated south and a white uh, protestant mother from southern california whose primary identity more than being white is probably the fact that she's a very devout christian i mean that's what means the most to her um, she was uh, different from many people in her environment and that she didn't put importance on race. She married a man she fell in love with and she was willing to navigate the kind of social ostracization that came with that when um, members of her white community uh, thought that that was crazy to be married to a black man. Um, my father comes from an environment where um, a drop of black blood makes a person black. So on the segregated side of the Texas town he grew up in, um, in his high schools uh, and, and, and grammar schools, there were children of all variety of phenotype because mixing is as old as the country is. There were, there were black kids on the segregated side of town who were light-skinned, who had light eyes, who had different hair textures, but they were all black because they were, they were, they were brought together by this idea of hypodescent. I grew up in a, obviously in a mixed household with a brother were two beige skinned kids and, you know, nobody really questioned the idea that uh, the fact that we had a black father made us a black family. My parents raised us uh, as black boys um, and taught us that if we went outside, you know, in the, in the wider world, no one's going to parse our ancestry. We're, we're black. And, you know, the white kids that we were around treated us as though we were not white and the black kids we were around 
accepted us as, as black because, because there's no more physically varied group of people than black Americans. So growing up, my identity was kind of straightforward, even though in retrospect, I can see there were certain contradictions within my own household. But, you know, I mostly dated black or mixed girls. Uh, I always assumed that my children would be mixed like me, but they would be black. And I lived in multicultural, multi-ethnic spaces like Washington, D.C. and New York City. So I didn't really think much about any of this stuff until I was 29 and I met my, my wife, who's a, a white French woman who actually, now that I think about it, is colored the way that my mother is colored, blonde haired blue eyes. And as we got married um, and started thinking about having a family, I realized that uh, there was a high likelihood that my children might not present physically as black. And of course, when it happened, uh, not only did they not present physically as black, my children are, are, are white-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed kids. They look essentially Scandinavian or something. And so this kind of, this kind of simplicity uh, American racial binary I had that you're either white or black and that a drop of black blood makes you black made me think going into this that I would just teach my kids that they were black and that they would just kind of reproduce this idea um, that I had grown up with but the the physical presence of my daughter it just knocked that kind of thinking out of my head it really thrust the, the fictitiousness of race into my mind for the first time and it wasn't that I suddenly said to myself, oh, hey, I've got a white daughter. I've got to change the way I think. It was that I said to myself, if I'm a black man who can have a daughter that looks like this, what is, what is race as we make it really mean? And if my daughter um, can walk outside and, and look this way and people assume she's white and she can be 25% West African descended, then I, need, I, need to, I, I think that these categories can't really capture us or express the complexity of who we are. And I want, I, and I want to start stepping outside of this kind of abstract color category way of, of thinking and organizing myself and others. And then, I, and, and then as, I was, as I was writing about this process of having a child that challenged my racial preconceptions, then I was, you know, I was reading Racecraft by Barbara and Karen Fields. I was reading a lot of Albert Murray. James, these ideas are very much in James Baldwin. I was just thinking very critically about race, not, not, not in, in, in a critical race theory way, but I was, I was starting to interrogate the assumptions that I had accepted my whole life. And, and it led me to the conclusion that uh, I don't think it's just my family that these categories fail. It's, it's, it's most, if not all of us, that these categories fail. And they certainly are failing us as a society that's organized all around the logic of what most of us admit is a biological illusion. I, I know you mentioned in your book about the colorblindness, and I, I see that problem. Like, I like the idea of not putting social significance on race, but then when you're looking at policy issues, I don't think you should bring race into them, but if you're looking at you know, the black population in the United States, you know, the, the descendants of slaves, and like the communities they live in, if you want to help those communities, at one point or other, policy is going to have to involve race or color or something. So I can see the harms in colorblindness where like, well, we're all the same now. Just pull yourself up. Because if you don't acknowledge that, you know, the neighbor, like communities in the South, especially, or communities in the inner cities, that, you know, because of, slavery or redlining or Jim Crow or you know, all those laws that came down. 
that affected those communities. So when you're looking at policy, you sh- like, I understand why the government would do it. And, you know, just bringing up the colorblindness thing, oh, we should just treat everyone equally. It's like, well, they're not starting from an equal footing anyway. So let's fix that first of all. Cause, and you could, same could be said about like white, small white communities in Appalachia. They're, you know, they're horrible conditions. So race will come into play with it. But when they switch it to like what the CDC did with the vaccine for one day where they said, okay, well, we don't give it to old people because, you know, they're predominantly white. That's where we need a bit of a colorblindness. Absolutely. I mean, I don't, um, colorblindness is something I do get into in the book. And there's a kind of um, way of wanting to do colorblindness that reinforces the racism that's very real in our society. Just because I, I reject race does not mean that I, deny um, the existence of racism, which is pervasive. I, for one, am, in, am very much in favor of, of, um, of reparations in certain ways. Uh, I, I, I don't know exactly what form it should take, and I'm not a scholar um, of this stuff, but there are others doing really valuable work about how, for example, people like my father were shut out of certain housing markets. They're still alive. There's actual damage done to specific people uh, and, and, and their heirs, which, which could be um, evaluated and, and, and there could be a number put on that damage and people could be repaired. That makes sense to me. That has nothing to do with blood and skin. I don't think that there's such thing as reparations owed to all people who share a certain amount of pigment, including immigrants from other countries. Uh, that kind of reparation stock doesn't make sense to me, but repairing certain communities that were present in the country and the government failed them in certain ways and and that can be measured that makes total sense to me and that would go a long way towards helping um uh, reduce some of the class inequality that you'd mentioned um and i think that otherwise you know like talking about race is often a way of obfuscating the kind of class inequality that uh is really harming our society and you mentioned whites in appalachia a lot of policies that would really help um, whites in Appalachia would also help plenty of poor blacks because the fact of the matter is that race is not exactly um, a perfect way of understanding material matters in society. So, and it's also not a way of understanding things like, uh, you know, um, police brutality. Uh, If you made certain um, changes that Black Lives Matter call for, um, and law enforcement practices, uh, they should be something that we can all buy into universally. They, sh- they shouldn't be identity dependent. And what you get to now is a kind of um, racecraft that does actually um, posit that um, harming certain people so that so harming more people, allowing more older people to die um by not getting a vaccine first so that younger people who are more diverse get the vaccine first even if in total numbers more more whites and non-whites die that that's a form of equity because it's less unequal than fewer people dying who are more more black disproportionately black or non-white this this is a kind of madness that and and you can see it's actually we've arrived at this point faster than i would have believed we could we could be i mean since george floyd died in may the kind of discussions that we have now about equity. It's, it's just not what I could have predicted when my book came out last, this time last year. Yeah. I mean, okay. Same here. Like I saw it in 2014. I saw it build up, but it didn't give you a, until George Floyd happened. There was no, 
I don't think that there, there was any indication that these ideas, which are really fringe ideas and are kind of crazy when like the CDC stuff is really crazy when you, when you put it in paper and you actually, and you see what they're saying, there was no indication that that could happen until, until the kind of explosion of, of, of racial rhetoric happened after May 25th. Oh, I mean, up until uh, George Floyd's killing, the stuff that was coming out from the social justice left um, was more on the trans issues. I mean, the race, I'm not saying that, you know, there wasn't the talk of race. I mean, obviously like Kendi and, um, you know, D'Angelo and all kinds of other people, but the trans issue was really taking steam because that was getting into medical stuff. You were, you know, uh, there was also women's rights involved in that. And I mean, it's, it's picking back up now, but yeah, the race stuff right after George Floyd. And I mean, it's understandable why it happened. Uh, but you started seeing well, it everywhere. It's partially right? understandable. It's not entirely understandable. Uh-huh. One of the things I've tried to insist on that gets really short shrift is that George Floyd died. It was horrible. I think it was racially motivated. But, you know, you can always find an example of someone who is not black, who has died in a similar circumstance like Tony Timpa in 2016, I believe, who had several police officers kneeling on him while he said he couldn't breathe. It was videotaped and they were laughing and he died. That never caught the nation's imagination. Um, But the thing that I think is when we talk about which part of your identity is most salient, George Floyd was a poor man. He wasn't just a black man. He He was a poor black man. He was out of work. And the reason why he had an interaction with the police was because he had passed a counterfeit banknote which is something that can only happen to you if you're in a certain type of economic squeeze. Uh, and I think that, again, we have to, we, the, the, the racial component of it led to conversations about representation at the Poetry Foundation, in, in, in museum spaces, uh, in, in elite media spaces. It, ha- it really has nothing to do with, you know, there was a, there was a you talk about trans issues uh, becoming involved. There was a 15,000 person march for black trans lives in front of the Brooklyn Museum, um, which, which, which may or may not be an important um, march to have, but at the height of a global pandemic, and you can't tell me that there's a complete neat overlap between the people that are concerned in poor black communities about being killed by police and, and, and the need to um, recognize and uplift trans lives. That's, that, there, there was a kind of, there was, there was an idea creep, a lot of ideas attached on to this image of a poor black man being um, suffocated in Minneapolis that were not necessarily predictable before that happened or, and don't necessarily make sense for being coupled altogether. Okay, I, I, maybe just because I, I read, I was, I, mean, like I was following this a lot, um, even when I was up north, you know, it's minus 50 Celsius, for a long period of time at night. So you sit inside and you, you go on the internet. Um, so I mean, I've, there was always that overlapping. It started more and more after about 2016, just more as these theories started interplaying with each other. Um, so I, I mean, like you said, it's, it's a small number of people. So the people who are doing this strength in numbers. So we're all for social justice. That's why, I mean, on the Black Lives Matter page, they talk about trans issues. They talk right. about, uh, you know, I think they talk about, you know, they talk about gay rights as well. They mix all this together because they need, it, it's just strength in numbers. But then, I mean, you, you see that fall apart. Like there was, um, 
a couple of papers that came out recently about how uh, straight white uh, straight black men are the white men of the black community. Oh and, yeah, <laughs> you know, like things like that. I mean, you know, it's just okay. And you know, this whole conversation after after the election, where there's a lot of um, frustration and questioning of whether Latinos should be under the umbrella of POC because because of the, the the disproportionate support that they were showing towards Trump. I mean, there's been a lot of um, rethinking, you know, the coalition, you know, and I don't know, man. I- <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's all, okay. There was a meeting in, in, in Toronto earlier this year, like I think it was in July and it was Brown complicity in white supremacy. So basically they were paying, playing off the entrance convergence idea, but they were saying white people only hire Brown people to show that they're not racist and Brown people taking those jobs is being complicit in white supremacy and keeping black people down. There was, and, there, was mean, there was a protest for this. No, there, it was an online. Oh, it was an online. And it was a con. Okay, it, uh, it was a conference that people could watch. It was sponsored by the Toronto Star, which is a major newspaper in Canada. I mean, you know, it was two South Asians and one Middle Easterner. And I mean, okay, so my 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 family moved to Canada. Well, my my parents told me this when we moved here in uh, the mid seventies. That was December of 75. They had $12 in their pockets. You know, they both worked hard. You know, my dad started a, my dad started a convenience store. Then four years later, with some, sold that with some friends, started a plastics factory. And we ended up having a, you know, a very comfortable life. But to say that he was complicit in white supremacy for doing that, I mean, that's insulting to me. It's crazy. Yeah. And, and, and I mean, I, I keep seeing stuff like that. So, now in the States with, oh, Asians going to school, like there's, I've been following, like I spoke with Asher Namani about what was going on at her, at her school in uh, Virginia. Um, and <clears throat> there's a new term I heard recently, like instead of BIPOC, they're saying we should call it, I don't know, BIL, B-I-L, Black, Indigenous, and Latinx, because Asian, like East and South Asians yeah, you know, are white adjacent. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> separating out Asians. Yeah, yeah I mean, it's, it's again, the, because Asians, in so many ways, they contradict the narrative of, um, of white supremacy.
Well, James Walden, of course, his message was fundamentally that these things can be fixed through love, which is something that you don't hear anywhere nowadays. And, you know, he also said that, you know, it's um, impossible to demand that we transcend racial division, but the, um, the impossible is the least that we owe to the next generation. So James Baldwin diagnosed uh, the racial uh, brutality of American society as, as, as keenly as anybody, but he certainly didn't stop there. And he had a vision that's very different than what you get from, from an Ibram Kendi or a Robin DiAngelo who makes tons of money by telling white people that they have racism coming out, seeping out of their pores. Like, like for me, like I look at this and I, I still see like an education problem. And I understand the, like I said, the social media, but there is a, a book that's being taught in Pennsylvania now and it's to kindergarten kids and it's called Not My Idea. It starts off, I don't want to say okay, it still starts off like the how to be a you know, anti-racist baby, the Kennedy book. And it, it's focusing on getting kids to focus purely on race. But near the end of the book, they have a contract and it's a contract with whiteness and it costs your soul. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I can send you the, the screenshot of this, man. Like, they're telling that whiteness is. It says that whiteness is always a bad idea. You know, it's it's like owning property ownership, individual rights, like all this stuff, and it 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 gives you privilege. It gives you uh, uh, wealth off uh, labor of oppressed people, and, and this is to kindergarten kids. That's nuts. I mean, I would, I would, <laughs> I would agree that we should all be that white people should should be critical of the identity that they reproduce in society. But, but the idea that we should not all be equally critical of the ideas that we buy into and reproduce is, is where I diverge. I mean, I think that um, race itself is a, is a construct that doesn't necessarily achieve the society that we would like to get to um, that Martin Luther King uh, had, had, had dreamed of and that, many people hoped Barack Obama would kind of um, inch us along towards. I think that, you know, retiring from race, so to speak, is something that we could all, is a project we could all buy into. But the idea that um, everybody should uh, reify um, race and buy into their kind of designation and be proud about it, uh, except for white people who should feel guilty and should just uh, be silent and ask for forgiveness. Not only is that ridiculous it, it, it just is counterproductive if you look at like an elite private school uh in new york like the fieldston school they tried this with third graders uh the times reported on it extensively you separated third graders into groups based on their racial identity which was let alone a mess for mixed kids half jewish half chinese kids who didn't know which group to sit with but you basically separated kids into their identity group Every group celebrated themselves. Latinos talked about all that Latinos had overcome and achieved. Blacks talked about how they built the country. Asians talked about how they achieved as immigrants coming here. And, and white kids were supposed to sit and think about their privilege uh, while everybody else was celebrating themselves. And the Times reported that within a few weeks, it became a white supremacist group. Because it just doesn't make sense that, people, that, that one group is going to just permanently feel bad. And, you know, even just feeling that you're the, you know, there's a way of thinking that I've tried to write about in the past, which is whenever you center whiteness this way, by making it superior as the racists do, or by making it the single 
um, villain responsible for all that's wrong in, in the world, uh, you give it a sense of superiority and, and you make it different than everything else and special. And so there's a, there's a point at which anti-racist thought uh, overlaps quite neatly with, with, with race, racist ideas of, of white difference and exceptionalism. I mean, it was, okay, BLM, some of the BLM chapters in universities, I think it was 75, uh, got, so 75 colleges got some, some form of segregated dorms. And the KKK cheered it on. Of course, of course. Yeah, but of course. Shouldn't that give you pause to maybe look at what you're doing? Right, and it doesn't. It really doesn't. But you know, there's many ways in which um, anti-racist thinking has come full circle to to start from the same premises that that real white supremacist thoughts comes from. They just draw slightly different conclusions. Um, so we're very far away from the kind of uh, racial. Um, transcendence that Martin Luther King um, died for. Uh, we're very far away from civil rights era ideals. Uh, and, I and, I, and I don't know how we kind of pull back from it because what it is, is it's, it, it is effective. Um, when you structure society as a kind of zero-sum power struggle among um, racial groups and you get quite a lot given to you by keeping white people on the hook and demanding um, a kind of, you know, fantasy of equity. Uh, why would you stop that if it's working? It's working so well. You're, you have, you have the, just this week, you have articles uh, in the New York Times and elsewhere arguing seriously that there should no longer be standards for Ivy League admissions. Not, not, not affirmative action, but that there should be no screening. There should be a simple lottery that allows people that are not just drawn from pools of, of, of more or less equally deserving candidates, but that are mixing in completely unqualified candidates into the pool as well. This was, this was, this was an argument made in the New York Times. And it's gaining ground. So why would anybody ever stop this when it's working like this? Also, I mean, like I look at like something like that, but just step that back a bit. Like what what Harvard's being sued for right now? Now, if you give if you give like black kids or Latino kids a bump up on their SATs and they get accepted to Harvard, I I mean you're doing a disservice to those kids because if they're not prepared, if you had to give them that bump to to qualify, I mean I think what would be better would be saying okay, you know what? we like the way you progress in high school. We like your grades. We think you have potential. We'd like you to take a year as a preparatory year, you know, state community, state college, community college, or even like something through Harvard. And then the, and if you can keep like whatever, a B plus average, the next year you're guaranteed a spot. I mean, I think that would serve the student better. That would serve the university better. And at the end, you know, serve society better because just having, bringing a kid into a STEM field and then, they don't do well and then they get you know either they drop out completely or they'll end up in some other course and let's say they end up in a course and they're taking critical race theory it's like aha i was screwed because white people are racist you know i mean this like this serves no one well yeah mis mismatch theory is real um th th there's no doubt about it but we're moving what you propose makes sense but we're moving quickly far away from that Oh, I know. It's it's. It, like I said this since George Floyd. The 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 pace that this has spread is last. Like I, I've been tracking this for a little bit. 
Last year, it was in 16 states, I believe, to some level or another, um, like CRT-based curriculum from K through 12. And this year, it's just, I mean, I've seen like Texas, there were 46 schools in Texas, 46 school districts that want to take on a BLM-based cur- curriculum. Now, two years ago in Texas, they had a big thing where they found out they weren't teaching about slavery correctly. Like it was just like a minor thing. They weren't teaching about Jim Crow and it was the same thing in Mississippi. I mean, that extreme is wrong as well. Like I, you know, there has to be, there has to be a a proper way to teach this going over it. Like, I mean, when you're, if you're seeing this in Texas, which is, I guess now a little bit more of a purple state, but it is more or less a red state. It's getting everywhere. It's not uh, like that, you know, fixing this, fixing the Academy, getting policies, those are good, but if you don't get it out of schools, I mean, you're going to have a population that's not functional. I mean, yeah, I, I, in some ways we're already there. I mean, <laughs> on, I, and the thing is, I don't like yeah. to always make it seem as though things would be fine were it not for the excesses of the left. Uh, our society, like, make no mistake about it, American society <laughs> is dysfunctional. Uh, in many ways, because of what's been happening on the right and the extraordinary anti-intellectualism that comes from that side of the spectrum oh. and the lack of willingness to engage honestly with subjects like slavery opens up a space for this stuff. You, you know, you're absolutely right to, to bring up the fact that in places like uh, Texas, uh, they're not even, they're saying that slavery was a happy institution in which um, the slaves were well taken care of, crap like that. And that opens up the space for this. Uh, so I think American society is, you know, it's profoundly anti-intellectual. It has been for quite some time. And the two sides, uh, as they move towards greater extremes, they feed off of uh, and exacerbate each other. And that's what we're seeing now. And don't get me wrong, like, I always considered myself on the left, if you want to call it that. Like I, I, I've been joking since I came back from overseas that I'm an enlightenmentarian. I support the enlightenment values. I don't care about left or right anymore. It just, it's, it's all nonsense. Um, but yeah, I get what you're saying about the right, and I, but I speak out about the stuff on the left because that was, you know, whatever that side or the the, the center, anyways. There, our, our sense making capabilities are gone. Like, how are you going to push back against intelligent design? When the trans community, you know, they're fighting about whether gender is real, you know, like when biology departments are fighting about this, like, how are you going to take on intelligent design if that comes up again? You know, you're, I I saw something the other day was, uh, I can't remember her name, Kim Classic, I think it was, she ran in Baltimore, she was a Republican, she was a black woman running for the Republicans, she lost, but she just started putting out so-and-so is married to Chinese. So-and-so is married to a Chinese person. They're all politicians. Now, this stuff coming from the left that says Asians are now white or white adjacent or they've taken on whiteness, that gives an opening to real racists. And I, I don't know this person. Just those, those tweets were racist. I don't know her. I don't want to, you know, whatever, call her out. But to say that that's my issue with, with the stuff on the left is teaching this to kids, like teaching whiteness and all that to kids and getting white kids to think about their racial identity, that's going to create more assholes like that came to Charlottesville. Well, look, when I, uh, when I interviewed Richard Spencer several years ago, one of the most noxious individuals I've ever spoken to, when I interviewed him, uh, we had a conversation along similar lines, and he said the kind of um, 
heightened racial awareness uh, that the left provokes and the way that they get white people to think about and fixate on their own whiteness, he said, is a great first step. I just want them to make another step beyond that. Like they think about themselves as racialized. They think about themselves as superior and operating from a position uh, on a hierarchy. And, uh, and they just need to make this final movement that, uh, that turns into white pride and, and makes them want to separate from, you know, from this multi-ethnic society that we're creating that's debasing whiteness. I mean, he, he was all for it as, as, a, as, a kind of, as a kind of movement. And, and, and I had to say, you know, it makes a lot of sense what he was saying. It is true. The, 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 the thing that racists, and I had this disagreement with Ibram Kendi when he came to speak at Bard when I was a visiting fellow there. He said that the racist fantasy is a colorblind society where all of the inequalities and racial differences that really exist are hidden. And so that they can just pretend it's not there. And I said, you absolutely don't know what you're talking about. That I, if you talk to white supremacists, that's a nightmare for them, the colorblind society. They want a society where everybody is highly racialized and aware of racial difference. And then they want, to, they, they, they want you over there and themselves over here and separated. They, they, they don't want a colorblind society where everybody mingles. He had no answer for that because he just assumes that that's what racists want because he believes racial difference is real. And in that way, he, he, is, he is reinforcing what they believe. They all believe racial difference is real. The real nightmare uh, would be to find ways to achieve a society in which the way that you look physically and your ancestry tells me as little useful knowledge about you as an individual as, it pos- as, as, as possible. That's, that's the society I want to achieve. Same here. Like I would much rather prefer another, just an actor. Like when I was working overseas, my first boss, he was first nations. And one day we were just talking, we were, we we're sitting, I think we were in Kabul and we we're just, you know, after the day we we're just sitting there talking, whatever. And, he mentioned it. He's like, yeah, when I speak to you on the phone or, you know, I never think of you as someone who's brown. Like that to me struck me as really weird. It's like, okay, I don't think about that ever. I mean, obviously if you're looking at someone, you, you, you see their, you know, their skin color, their, their features, all that. But I, I've never, I shouldn't say I never, but I never, like personally, I would never put that kind of significance. It was only in like the late '80s, early '90s, when the PC craze started coming up, brought up race so much. Like, I mean, you know, the, like I said, I faced some racism in Canada in the '70s and the '80s, and it started dying down, and we were kind of forgetting about race. But then the late '80s, early '90s, the PC side started focusing on race more, and then now it's just it's crazy. Like, well, I would say I would I would just push back there and say that. Racists focus on race quite a lot too, and there there is quite a lot of racism. Uh, we haven't achieved a society that would be um, without racism were it not for just the left talking about it. Um, so I, I don't I don't want to give the impression that, that that's the case, uh, but it is true that, that, that these thing these these discourses feed off of each other, um, and you could say that there's a kind of uh, fetishization of of race and racism that happens on the left. And John McWhorter speaks very well about this. Things have gotten a lot better, and I am always aware of this when I compare my own American experience to my father's. He's in his 80s. He had a very different country than I've than I've inhabited. Uh, and it's almost as though what has happened on the left is that we're not even really um, allowed or it's almost impolite to 
to really to really be proud of that or to mention that or to or, or to acknowledge that that, that that things are much better and, and and you know they've done studies on this it's oftentimes when things do improve um, dramatically that people become heightenedly sensitive to whatever is is still wrong when my dad was coming up you wouldn't it would be crazy to talk about microaggressions because there were macroaggressions all around you know uh, it takes quite a lot of comfort to fixate on the kinds of things that we talk about now. Um, and so in one way you can look at that optimistically, we've made great tremendous strides, but in another way, I mean, it creates this, 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 this discourse of fetishization, uh, fetishizing grievance that is very difficult to get out of. Yeah. I mean the, okay. The, the grievance thing. So I worked for four and a half years in an Inuit community in Northern Canada, but what I saw up there and, you know, just like reading, talking to people and then like my friends who'd worked in the health department and things like that, everything was geared around these people being victims. Everything was geared that, oh my God, you're a victim. You've always been victimized. To live up in the Arctic, you have to be an incredibly resilient people and the Inuit are, but you've had, especially in the last 20 or 25 years, they're, they're continuously told that they're victims and everything's done for them. Like if they go get a prescription, instead of getting a bottle, a bottle of pills saying take two pills twice a day, they get a sheet with all the pills distributed that they need to take every day. Like this is the morning one, this is the afternoon one. Like, <laughs> like, like no, treat people like adults. Give them, give them the capacity to deal with their own shit. And that's where I, I, I think that's one of the biggest problems of this is the you're you're making victimhood a commodity. Absolutely. I mean, that's, it's a commodity and it's also a source of currency. I, I can't speak on the Inuit, um, but, you know, there's a kind of competition for this currency, which, which, which buys you a lot in, in, in this moment. And so how do you disincentivize that? That's where I think we have to think really strategically outside of just trying to win an argument uh, and be correct. How do you disincentivize somebody for whom this is working? Whole groups for whom it's working. It gives you cultural capital online and offline to, to present yourself as having been aggrieved. Oh, if I apply for a job or whatever, I hate that section of the, like, the visible minority, whatever. And, I, and I've hated it since the PC days. Because I used to joke about it. I was in school and I, I was working part-time at an insurance company. I'd come to the office and I'd, oh, I just heard today that I can't be racist because I'm brown. And they're looking at me like, what? And I mean, like, like I heard that back in the late 80s. <laughs> you know, so well, I, if you're, I, I mean, if you're Arab, <laughs> technically you're Caucasian in America. Um, I, but I was, okay. So I've done the 23 and me. Uh, <laughs> no, it's just because I was born in India and my family had been in India for a few generations. So I didn't know exactly. And my dad was always proud of his Arab, Arab heritage. And, he always thought he was more Arab than he was, I think, because I turned out I was 63% South Asian. Oh, okay. And I was like, so you're, you're, you're Caucasian slash white adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, like, <laughs> you know, or what? Okay. I saw something yesterday and it just, I mean, it, uh, white Africans, uh, white Africans aren't Africans. They're uh, diet colonizers. I'm like, okay, we'll tell that to the Northern Africa, uh, you know, like tell that to like Moroccans or something. You know? Yeah, I mean, uh, 
I think that, you know, far better for all of us would be to try to conceive of values and principles that can be universally applied and that we can all buy into and that would uplift um, all of us and that would, would in some ways, uh, you know, recognize uh, everybody without fetishizing difference. That's, that's, that's the, I live in France, you know, that's the way that French society is supposed to work and that is being... Um, stressed right now at the moment uh, and Macron is uh, having quite an important discussion. President Macron is having quite an important discussion about um, how to make a multi-ethnic society work. And he's saying, look, we look at the American model and that's not the model that we want here. We have, we have a, we have a model that's based on all citizens being uh, equally uh, recognized uh, and recognized as citizens of France and not insofar as they're, uh, avatars of, uh, of, of differing identity groups. It's, a, it's, a, it's another way of conceiving society. And I think it's very important that that vision uh, has a home and, and hopefully wins out. Okay, that, that kind of idea. That's, so take the, you know, the ethic of Martin Luther King or even like the, the ideals of the Constitution, the Declaration of, the Indep- uh, Declaration of Independence in the state. Like if you build an identity, okay, you're American first and foremost and being an american again i I don't want to say it happened i I don't think it did but i think we were getting close to that in the late 90s or and but then it just shifted like how do you change that idea of okay think of yourself as these ideals and you know you don't make them all lofty like oh we're like in canada we're going to be kind diversity is our strength we're an open you know like actually you know bring civics classes back for christ's sakes like just a little thing like you know talk about the harms and the talk about the harms that were done talk about the advancements that were made and show that okay you know what 100 years after the declaration of independence slavery was ended 100 years later jim crow was ended you know you know civil rights act in 64 uh, voting rights act in 68 show the progress that was made and do it for those ideals and i'll just ramble for a second more like there's a friend of mine um faisal al-mutar he start, started this organization called ideas beyond borders and he was a refugee from Iraq. He grew up under Saddam's Iraq. He's a U.S. citizen now. Started, I think this is their going into their fourth year. They translate books on science and philosophy into Arabic and make them available for free in the Middle East. And so he put out a call for translators in Iraq. On the first day, he got 15,000 people willing to do this, and they're putting their lives at risk. What I was trying to say is, like, he's spreading that idea, like, can we get that back to here? I don't know if that's possible. Like, like that idea of like he's spreading enlightenment values. Like, why are we going away from them where other people want them? Well, that's that is the question. Uh, and you know, if you think that that means that these societies have become in some ways rather decadent, then I think that you might be onto something. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's that it's it's the fall of Rome. Uh, look, I don't want to keep you too too much longer. Um, you know, thanks a lot. If you've got any last words of wisdom about how to get away from uh, focusing on race? It'd be great. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Uh, how do we get away from focusing on race? What I try to do, and I, I think, you know, this is something that you can get ridiculed for saying, but I think I've come to a point where I'm not seeing race in my life. I deal with people as individuals. I'm related to all manner of, of phenotypes, skin colors, um, and 
rather a few nationalities and ethnicities and religions. Uh, I, I, I stop dealing with race by stop dealing with race. And I know that that's what Justice Roberts said and it was laughed at, but um, we all have to kind of uh, put the sword of identity down. It's a sword that can be picked up and used by anyone. It's used by racists and it's used by a kind of anti-racist. And so long as people are swinging swords, um, a lot of us end up getting hurt. I put the sword down. I deal with people as individuals. All racism and all anti-racism, it necessarily starts on the interpersonal level. We talk all about system, systemic and institutional racism, but these are, what is an institution? It's, it's, it's people first and foremost. Um, make changes in your own life. That's what we can affect. That's how I try to, that's how I try to make these changes. Um, and then I try to, you know, I try to participate in conversations in good faith. I think that, you know, a lot of what's wrong right now is that we talk past each other, really try to listen to people and try to try to approach conversations with the um, mentality that you could be wrong and you could be, you could be uh, influenced yourself. Um, that's my elevator pitch for how to start. Right, well, thank you very much for coming on. And, you know, I just, well, well, since we're here in December, I'd like to wish you and your family a Merry Christmas. Same to you. Yeah, once again for coming on, and thank everyone for listening.